We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio today by David Green of the News Lens. Good evening, Gavin. And Klaus Badenhagen, who reports from Taiwan for German media. Good to be here. And tonight we'll be discussing anti-nuclear protests, seeing a lower than expected turnouts. More news, however, about a reactor at a nuclear power plant. The High Court upholding the acquittal of student leaders of the Sunflower Movement. A local hypermarket chain has been found to be involved in the local and recent toilet paper panic. A murder suspect's extradition from Hong Kong could need a special deal, as Taiwan doesn't have such a deal with the former British territory. And we're also talking about Taiwan's ranking one of the world's happiest countries. But we'll begin this week's show with China's decision to scrap term limits and allow Xi Jinping to serve as president indefinitely. And that's seen experts both here in Taiwan and abroad touting the possible effects that it could have on Taiwan. And of course the government has said that it's closely monitoring the impact of the removal of term limits for China's leader. So David, you lived in China for quite some time. How do you see Xi Jinping becoming El Presidente for life affecting cross-strait ties in the short term? Uh, in, the, in the short term, I don't actually think it's going to make um, that much difference. Uh, you've seen some s saber-rattling in the press. I think we're going to see more and more of that um, as we go forward. Um, but you also saw last week uh, Beijing roll out these measures to incentivize uh, Taiwanese business leaders um, and students to head over, um, uh, offering them equal status with, with mainlanders. So if that's the carrot, um, then you've got the stick of potential military action. She now has uh, absolute control over um, both the state and the uh, the military, and now it seems the party. Um, what exactly he's going to do with that? Nobody really knows. Uh, he's obviously been a lot more aggressive, uh, talking about foreign policy, talking about China as a great power. Um, I don't think we can really say what this means This means for Taiwan. Um, and whether he's going to rule for life, we can't really say that either. Um, the suppression of the criticism of, of what's been happening on Chinese social media it suggests uh, the fundamental weakness of, of that position. Um, coupled with the anti-corruption campaign that's been running for five years, he's alienated a lot of people with that campaign. Um, and so you, you have to wonder whether the cracks will start to appear in this edifice of absolute control at some point. Um, and so I think the, the situation is to, is to stand pat and, as, as Taiwan has said, just to observe uh, what happens next and, and what the other comments that come out of Beijing are. But could it be argued maybe better the devil you know than the devil you don't? Um, it could. I mean, the fact that he now has uh, potentially his lifetime to act on this and he has said that he wants a resolution to the Taiwan issue, taking away that five-year um, pressure that he would have had if he was going to hand over power means that he now has a, an open road and, and presumably this well, this might mean that uh, we can come to some kind of resolution. Um, you know, of course, for that to happen, we'd, we'd actually have to start uh, talking to, to Beijing again. Um, and that doesn't look that likely in the, in the near term. Because it was Klaus, Xi Jinping once said that he wanted to deal with the Taiwan issue by 2023. Did he actually say that? Because I might be paraphrasing, but it did get written <laughs> down David, that he, he said it. <laughs> Um, I hadn't I hadn't heard that 2023 that was a date that I'd I'd heard. Um, well, as far as I know, he he has not said that uh, it needs to be 
finished in, in his term in office. So now people are saying, well, in his uh, third term, starting in 2022, 2023, that will be the time when it gets really dangerous for Taiwan. But uh, there have always been like uh, apocalyptic prophecies like this. I remember there was a book saying China's, uh, uh, China's uh, invasion of Taiwan in 2012, and then 2012 passed. And um, Hu Jintao said something like, there needs to be something done really quickly, and everybody thought it was in his term. And then he went, and not Xi Jinping. So um, I think as, as long as he doesn't say, I want to solve this in my time, um, we need not go into panic mode that quickly. But do you see the Chinese side wanting to talk to Taiwan if Xi Jinping is going to be in power forever? Or do you think they'll just put off talking to Taiwan? Well, it looks like they are not interested in talking to the current government in Taiwan, so that shouldn't change. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I don't see the Chinese position changing on this at all. I just think we'll see more of a, a gradual squeeze um, through whatever measures they can come up with, whether it's tourist visits or economic incentives for Taiwanese um, to accelerate the brain drain. Um, or its aircraft routes, um, you know, whatever it is, but more of the same. And moving on, and well, the government's energy policies came under fire this week, thrice. And that's despite an anti-nuclear protest in Taipei attracting far fewer numbers than such rallies have done in the past. Apparently 2,000 people attended this past Sunday's anti-nuclear rally, which was well down on previous numbers. Also this week, the Atomic Energy Council said that the second reactor at the number 2 nuclear power plant could start generating electricity by the end of this month or by early April, and the earliest if Taipei gets approval to bring it back online. Now, it's likely to get approval due to the fact that lawmakers, well, they were told they could vote on it, and now there seems to be some question over whether they'll be allowed to vote on it and whether Thai Power will just simply go ahead and reactivate the reactor. Well, people are saying that the government is going back on its promise to get out of nuclear power. I don't see that. I mean, the official line was always we are pulling through with the originally commissioned running time of the three old nuclear power plants. In the case of this one, it's um, 40 years. It will end in 2025, and then we are going to turn them off, and we are not going to uh, start using the fourth nuclear power plant. So if they say, um, well, the reactor has been fixed, there were problems, and now we have seven years left where we can still use it to generate energy, but we are still going to turn it off in 2025, I don't see them as, as um, going back on what they promised the voters in the first place. What about the concern? Because the reactor's been turned off since May of 2016, and of course environmentalists have voiced concern that turning it on after so long it being offline could be dangerous. Yeah, of course, that needs to be checked, and I hope that the experts who are going to um, come to a conclusion on that are really acting independently and not on some orders. Um, the, the old nuclear power plants in Taiwan have some other issues as well. I think it's, it's not this one, but the other one on the north coast, they uh, the storage pools for the spent uh, nuclear fuel rods are like full they they don't even have a place to put them anymore so that's a serious problem uh, if in this nuclear power plant uh, it was some um, problem in the electric system in 2016 that led to it being turned off well they did have enough time to fix that now it, it should be uh, the option should be on the table to restart it is my opinion what about the the, the, the falling numbers of anti-nuclear protesters um, I think actually, if you if you look back to last year, there, there wasn't that much difference, um, and I, I think this has been sort of speculated elsewhere that the the two hundred thousand that turned out in two thousand fourteen was at a, a point at which 
um, political activism and, and even militancy in in Taipei and, and in Taiwan was running at a peak. So very easy to galvanise those kind of numbers against um, opposition, you know, movements against the KMT government at the time. So, and given that the DPP, as Gauss has said, has reaffirmed this 2025 commitment to phasing out nuclear power, um, you know, there is a the question of how much of an issue is this. Um, I think the the spent fuel world issue is is pretty concerning. If there was an earthquake, which is what the worries are about, like Fukushima, um, what happens to those spent fuel rods? Um, we don't really have an answer to that. And I think another issue that's being debated is what to do, where to put the uh, the, the spent fuel, the radioactive waste. Um, there's a site on Orchid Island. I think that that's uh, coming to an end of its life lifespan. Um, and so the protesters were also asking, um, what's next? Let's fast track this and let's let's find a solution for where to put our waste. And of course, Taiwan doesn't have very many places away from population centers and that aren't environmentally sensitive to put that waste. And so I think that there'll be a, you know, another issue potentially with protests coming up whenever they decide where it is they're going to put it. So, Klaus, the fall in numbers of anti-nuclear protesters, do you think this is, this is going to continue or do you think people are just fed up with it? Well, I think, um, like so many subjects, like uh, the public interest comes in cycles. There are ups and downs, and um, a lot of uh, protest energy was spent on other subjects recently, like the labor um, standards amendments. So maybe nuclear or anti-nuclear is not on top of some um, people's uh, list right now, but that might change again. If, if the decision on whether to reactivate it or not... Um, becomes more heated. Maybe if the parliament protests against not being able to vote about it, like they were promised originally, maybe it moves up on the agenda again, and then you will see bigger protests again. But it's really interesting to see how this subject is being politicized right now, because yesterday in the legislative UN, the KMT protested against it, and wearing masks and shouting slogans against I quote here, the DPP's erroneous energy policy, which includes the reactivation of the reactor at Guosheng. Um, well, all of a sudden, once they once they're in the opposition, they discover their anti-nuclear DNA, and it's really a surprise looking at the KMT here. But talking about the KMT and energy, of course, this week also there was controversy over Thai Power's plans to expand a coal-fired power plant in New Taipei. That was in New Taipei's Shanao district. Now, the New Taipei city government, of course, has long had a policy of not issuing new coal-use permits to any power-generating facilities across the board, basically. And anyway, the new Taipei city government this week was put out by Thai Power's claims that it'll put, apparently, Klaus, a, a better coal processing generator in this power plant. Well, they say they just want to replace the old, dirty, ineffective ones with new, more effective, less pollution-emitting ones and basically keep the plant running that has been there before. So um, I'm not an expert on nuclear coal power plants. I would really have to look into that, but... Um, also, government policy is that by 2025, they still need 30% of power nationwide um, generated by coal power plants. So there will still need to be some coal power plants running. And um, then they should better be like modernized, uh, more effective ones than the stuff they built 30 years ago. So, David, you've got the government this week ready to kickstart a reactor at a nuclear power plant, ready to give Thai power the go-ahead to put in a new coal-burning generator at a coal-burning power plant. Erroneous is how the KMT described the, KM, the DPP's energy policy. Flip-floppy, 
Uh, Erroneous? How would you describe it? Well, I think it's a consequence of not wanting to sit in the dark. Um, <laughs> and last year, obviously, th those power cuts um, were, were hugely damaging. We now know that it wasn't to do with sort of overall pressure on the grid, um, uh, but some kind of error at a particular power plant. Um, you know, as Carl said, they, they, didn't, they need to find a way to make this energy transition work. It's incredibly difficult. They're running up against the reality of making that happen um, and the... Uh, transition to renewables is taking longer than they expected um i think you have to cut the government a bit of slack here and, and let them work their way through these issues uh through the next um what is it seven seven years maybe seven years maybe could not be seven years klaus coal fire, coal or nuclear you, you're the president to make a decision <laughs> Well, may, coming from Germany, maybe I'm uh, not really impartial in this question. Um, because um, it's reassuring to see there's one other country that um, says it's going ahead with getting out of nuclear and uh, going for renewable. But maybe that's just because I don't want to see my own country being left out in the cold and be the only ones doing that. So um, I think definitely the situation in Taiwan, you need to look at the earthquake risk. I mean... Of course, you you like to put that out of your mind and not think about it. But um, there was also some government official the other day saying if a Fukushima-like accident happened here on the, one of the North Coast nuclear plants, you would basically have to evacuate half the population of Taiwan, which is impossible. So just the theoretical risk of something like this happening, I think, is enough to set a time frame and say let's get out of this here in Taiwan. Because, of course, David, the government has said coal, of course, it wants to get rid of most of coal because of pollution and emissions. And, of course, the argument against the Shenhao plant by the people who live in Shenhao, including the new Taipei city government, is it's a coal power plant and it's going to make emissions anyway. Uh, well, certainly, but, uh, you know, the I think that these uh, more efficient generators do make a difference in terms of emissions, um, and so that... So if it is just swapping them, um, presumably they're up, they're used to those emissions in the first place and they could be welcoming cleaner emissions. I mean, I also know there's an imbalance in the way that the grid is structured so that the north part of Taiwan is, is underserved. Um, and so Thai power in particular will be really um, keen to keep up the local basis of power supply in the north of Taiwan. Um, as far as the residents are concerned, uh, you know, they have obviously have the right to protest. I'm not sure it's going to make much difference. Um, as we as we go forward and and we've seen in in taijong the issues with the the power plant there and air pollution um you would hope uh that we won't see similar levels and problems happening in taipei you know we all live here we've seen pollution getting worse here i think uh, over a period of time so i can understand their grievances um uh but uh, you know as i said before we need to uh keep the country running Right, and talking of keeping the country running, the Taiwan High Court this week decided to keep the country running. That's by upholding the acquittal of the student leaders of the Sunflower Movement. Of course, they occupied the Legislative UN in 2014, protesting the then-government of Ma Ying-jeou and its dealings with China not being transparent enough. Now, of course, the, the court's decision to uphold the acquittal was cheered by some, but, of course, others were rather angry. And the China, the China Times newspaper, of course not known for its pro-DPP feelings, covered its front page with pictures of the occupation of the Legislative UN with a headline that basically screamed, how can you find these people 
innocent when they obviously did this and the photos were of them pushing a policeman against a wall smashing up furniture and barricading the door of the main chamber so david they've been acquitted again is this the end of it or do you think this somebody will try to push this further forward even though they've the court has said that there can be no appeal unless there's a violation of the constitution involved uh, crikey. Um, well, I mean, I had heard that they'd said that they're not, it's impossible to refer this on to the Supreme Court. Um, I don't see immediately what possible violation of the Constitution there could be um, to take this further forward. I mean, it does suggest that the judiciary tends to um, sort of swing with the public mood or the political mood to some extent here. Um, and you can see that also with the, with the media as well and, and under media pressure and we have a DPP government obviously um, the DPP stepped in 2016 um, and was very quick uh, to pull back on putting pressure on, on Sunflower Movement activists and so is the judiciary just falling into line with the government obviously that calls into question um, separation of powers um, you know I, I, I don't really know what's going to happen in, in the future I think sort of calling this a, an example of transparent justice and, 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 and which is uh, what Chen Wei-ting did um, and for the, the judge to say it was an expression of democracy and, and, and allowed within sort of civil disobedience um, provisions. Uh, I think it, it opens questions in the future, certainly for people like Taipei Police, about how they police future protest actions, what's allowed and what's not allowed. I'm sure it will encourage protesters um, to, to perhaps be a bit more... Um, uh, I don't want to say so a bit more activist, perhaps, um, when they take to the streets over over the next issue. So, you know, I think it's a really interesting ruling that that we'll see how it, it plays out on the streets in future. Yeah, I think that's the fallout we are going to have to deal with is that all kinds of protest movements, even if they're from the completely opposite end of the spectrum, will feel encouraged now to uh, resort to similar tactics like obstruction, um, occupation of, of government institutions, whether it be um, anti-pension reform, which, which happened where well, uh, some... Uh, a man fell to his death while trying to climb the legislative UN building. But um, in the future, and they've been doing that already, but now they have want more reason to always say, well, um, it's civil disobedience. Uh, we are just doing what the Sunflowers did. It was okay with them. So uh, Taiwan will definitely have to deal with that now, even if it's coming from the other direction. And what I found interesting was, if you look back at the ruling of the first court, the Taipei District Court, I think, April 2000. 17, um, they gave a very clear list of, I think, seven criteria of what in their mind constitutes civil disobedience, so which all need to be fulfilled, and then it would be justified. I think it's, it's really interesting to have a look at that, like how far this idea of um, freedom of protest uh, has made its way into the Taiwanese judicial system. I mean, um, reading that um, is really great example of the, the the freedom that Taiwan has achieved in debating stuff like this and even um, high-ranking judges taking that into account. But the court actually said that the protests, the student sunflower movement protests, were a form of expression protected under the freedom of speech laws. And they also said that the student protesters did not incite any violence. Of course, there are the naysayers to that. And of course, after Tuesday's ruling, some people argued that the students, well, they did technically push a few policemen around and they did technically cause a bit of damage. So possibly they should have faced charges of criminal damage and assault. Um... Possibly. I don't think those were the charges. Um, I think the judge also said that there were no weapons involved, which again begs the question of what you can do as long as you're not sort of packing a sword or something. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, if you're asking whether or not charges can be brought later on, um, I mean, it's clear that the prosecutors wanted to pin them for something um, because they appealed it from the district court to the high court. And you can understand why, as Garcia just said, they would want to do that because um, you need to be able to hold some kind of axe over protesters in the future and draw the line somewhere with what they can do. So... Um, you know, somebody would have to press those charges. Because they were charged originally, the 22 people, including a couple of leaders of the Sunflower Movement, they were charged with inciting others to commit a crime and obstruction of official business or other duties. Uh, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, which, which they were cleared of. So they clearly didn't do that. Um, <laughs> you know, so I think we can sort of draw a line under it there for now. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Of course, they did smash up some furniture. Could this be construed one day later on as criminal damage? They also ate some uh, sun cakes from a legislator's uh, desk drawer, so Ooh, I think they apologised for Bribery. <laughs> could be construed bribery. Anyway, we'll take a short break now here on Taiwan This Week, and we'll be right back after these important informational commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Fair Trade Commission. This week, in fact, announced the findings of its investigation into the recent panic buying of toilet paper here in Taiwan. And, of course, that made headline news around the world. Now, the commission is now set to fine the RT Mart hypermarket chain 3.5 million NT for its role in the toilet paper scare. Now, the commission said that RT Mart knowingly provided inaccurate information about a planned collective price hike of toilet paper that led to the sudden imbalance of supply and demand last month. Now, RT Mart also apparently announced the plan to price hike the toilet paper just ahead of the launch of a promotional campaign, well, for toilet paper. <laughs> well, it looks like we have a consumer rights um, body here that's uh, really actively trying to... Um, Wipe it clean! <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Wipe the slate clean. Well, um, no, actually... You quite often hear of like fines like this uh, against companies for like improper business practices. So I just wish that in the field of environmental protection or um, tax uh, administration, they would also um, pull it through, like like those guys do. Maybe some other government agencies could have a good look at them and learn from them. Of course, it's not the first time things have gone up, and now is it? The, of course, one of the ministers this week was forced to come out and say pork prices haven't risen. This is after reports came out that certain restaurants were selling like famous Taiwanese braised pork dishes more expensive this week than they were last week. Yeah, it's still interesting that in a free market economy like Taiwan, people are obviously still expecting the government to control the prices of everyday goods in a way. It's still this um, idea of the caring, strong government, which is ultimately controlling all aspects of, of society and, and business. Um, I know. Should, should the government be concerned about pork prices? Um, I mean... <laughs> well, pork! We're talking about pork, David! People are obviously concerned about, about pork prices. I mean, you know, what's inflation is at about 1%, I think, generally. So prices are not rocketing across the board. Um, for these basic necessities, I think it shows how vulnerable people are uh, to, or feel that they are, at least, um, to price hikes like, like this, um, which is an indication of uh, the stagnant wage situation and low low incomes and low disposable incomes. So, 
Um, you know, I think we're looking back, the media hyped that out of all proportion. The government helped by issuing its own statements on the matter. So maybe everyone just needs to calm down and let people run their promotional campaigns. Um, you know, probably quite rightly, RX Mart has been fined. Um, I think the fine is 3.5 million NT of a maximum 50 million NT. So that's a, a smack on the bottom, perhaps, rather than... You know, it's not really head. saying don't do it again, is it? No, it's not. And I wonder what's happening to the other four that were implicated and also the paper producers. Um, we don't have to, you know, were they all innocent um, because they weren't running promotional campaigns at the same time? I, you know, I'm not sure. Um, you know, but to cast this question whether or the question whether the government should be um, directing, uh, food, you know, prices of basic necessities, of course it shouldn't. It should be ensuring that there is a, enough competition in the market so that these price um, and gluts and, and uh, bottlenecks don't occur. Right, and we shall move on to a rather grim and sad story, that being the discovery of the body of a 20-year-old Hong Kong woman in a field near Jiuwei MRT station up here in northern Taiwan. Well, that's led to questions over the lack of a mutual legal assistance treaty between Taiwan and Hong Kong. Of course, police in Hong Kong have charged the 19-year-old student suspected of the killing, and he allegedly, police have said, hinted that he killed his girlfriend during a trip to the island in February in a hotel in Taipei. He then transported her body to the Jiuwei MRT station in a suitcase before dumping that and the suitcase. Now, this Thursday, that 19-year-old boy was in fact went to court in Hong Kong and he was charged there with handling stolen goods and two counts of theft. That's related to him using his dead girlfriend's bank card to take out money from a Hong Kong ATM when he returned to Hong Kong. Now, reports are saying that when he was in the court, in the Hong Kong court, the murder allegations that he could be facing in Taiwan were not mentioned. And that's got a lot to do with the fact that there's no extradition treaty. So the charges that he faces here are completely irrelevant to the court in Hong Kong. So, David, not a very nice situation. Could we see the government being forced to take action to talk to Hong Kong and China about a possible extradition treaty because of this case? Um, as I understand it, I think prosecutors here have already lodged um, a request with uh, their counterparts in, in Hong Kong to draw up some kind of special uh, legislative measure which is then supposed to be put to the Legislative Council in Hong Kong which would then have to approve it so that there is some kind of special arrangement um, that comes into force. How long that would take, who knows. Um, as you said, it's uh, pretty horrific and certainly tragic and the idea uh, that this guy could somehow get away with this because he can't be charged in Hong Kong and can't be returned to Taiwan to be to be tried is would be a travesty um, where we go from from here I mean it's we're just gonna have this, this uncharted territory isn't it which is, is in some way surprising Hong Kong has these agreements with um, you know more, more than two dozen I think other countries it, it seems really surprising to me that something like this hasn't happened before and there, you know, there would have been some kind of agreement hashed out then. You also have to ask about precedent. If this happens now for him, um, what might it mean in the future for uh, for for other uh, alleged uh, criminals or suspects who are transferring between the two countries? So it's, I think it's really complicated. 
Uh, but hopefully we can see some kind of resolution uh, that gets this bike back to Taiwan and tried. Yeah, it's really a bizarre case in so many ways. I mean, I'm learning things here I'm not even sure I wanted to learn. For example, if you murder a compatriot of yours uh, in another country and then go back, then apparently your own country or region in case of Hong Kong um, does not necessarily have any means of persecuting you. Uh, I think the Hong Kong... Um, Attorneys also said that they would need proof that he planned the murder while he was still in Hong Kong and did not just commit it spontaneously while he was in Taiwan in order for them to have jurisdiction. So um, it's mind-boggling in a way. It's also surprising that something like this apparently has not happened before. Of course, the South China Morning Post had an interesting article about this case earlier on in the week when it all came to light. And there was experts in Hong Kong, of course, were voicing concern about Taiwan and Hong Kong even signing such an extradition deal? Um, yeah, I mean, as I said, if it gets put before LegCo, what do they do with it? Um, and how, you know, how does that cooperation and discussion take place? Um, there are sort of political elements here as well, which is unfortunate. You'd like to think that we'd you know, keep this um, uh, confined to kind of the legalities. Um, but yeah, it is a really difficult situation. I'm sure that it's being mulled in, in Hong Kong at the moment and we don't know what kind of pressures might be being brought to bear on the people concerned there. Um, but as I, as I understand, Taiwan has asked for this assistance and, and we'll see how it, how it goes on from there. Also, extradition treaties do not um, mean that you need to have some kind of national recognition of sovereignty. I mean, you can also do it with non-sovereign regions, so that might be an excuse for the Hong Kong administration to still sign something with Taiwan because it in no way touches on the question of do we recognize them politically or not. Yeah, I think that is there a, a different provision? A surrender of fugitive offender agreement um, might be what they're asking for, which doesn't um, have all the same provisions as a extradition treaty. And of course, Taiwan has quite a few people. We won't name them, but of course, they've done a runner from Taiwan and now living in third countries for stealing money or basically not, not embezzling money, financial crimes, because this is a murder. So you think this public support for a murder or public support for financial crimes, which do you think will get generate more publicity in the public, where the public will get, say, no, he should come back to face well, these crimes? I was going to say that a lot of the um, extradition arrangements are over financial issues, bribery or, or, or embezzlement or whatever it might be, um, corruption. But, yeah, of course. I mean, the, the, the other difference is that there's no capital punishment in Hong Kong. And there is here. So if you get the media frenzy behind this and then this guy is tried over here, um, he could face the death penalty, potentially, or at least be put on death row. Um, you know, and that is a, another issue to consider. Um, you know, do we really want a, a media storm around this, given Taiwan's track record on, on how the media can influence judgments in these kind of cases? But then the Hong Kong administration would need to... Um sent him to Taiwan knowing that he could face the death penalty, which I think is a no-go. On the other hand, it's interesting to see what how the public opinion in Hong Kong is going to develop, because of course the, the victim's family lives in Hong Kong, and um, the government there is basically promising people, okay, we are cutting down on your civil rights and freedoms, but we are still taking good care of you. But in this case, um, someone who murdered one of their own, um, maybe getting away with it would show that well, they're not taking such good care of them. So I think there might be some public pressure on the Hong Kong authorities as well to to deal with this. But do you think the Hong Kong public would back him being sent to a country with the death penalty? Um, well, it's, I think they haven't had capital punishment in Hong Kong since 93, I think. Um, you know, 
I, I honestly don't know is the answer to that. Um, I think they would like to see justice done. I think that maybe they would favour that idea of justice being being done and there might be some understanding um, you know you don't have to give the death penalty um, life sentences are an option and, and the Taiwan Alliance to end the death penalty is educating about this actually quite actively that um, you know a life sentence means a life sentence um, and so if, if that message gets through uh, in the media which unfortunately I probably don't think it will um, you know th then I'm sure that, that, that public's opinion could swing to the idea of him uh, being sent back to Taiwan of course. Or, or just having the trial in Hong Kong in the first place if, if that's possible <laughs> I mean, is there a ter territorial principle for murder? Can it only be can it only put on trial in the country where it actually took place? I'm sure we shall see. Anyway, let's move on from that rather grim story and talk about happy news. And this is the news that Taiwan has been ranked as the world's 26th happiest country. And apparently the happiest country in East Asia in this year's World Happiness Report. Now, well... I guess it was Taiwan that was happy, of course, because the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, which produces the report, labelled the island as Taiwan Province of China. There we go. Congratulations on that one. So is the ROC happy? Is where I live happy? With Klaus and David here happy? Or is the province of China Taiwan happy? Um, I think... I think I think Taiwan is unhappy at being labelled as a province of China um, for certain. I mean, you have to look at how these things are calculated, and apparently, uh, it's to do with GDP per capita, life expectancy, social support, social freedom, generosity, and a lack of corruption. Um, so apparently, Taiwan is happier by all those measures uh, than anywhere else in East Asia. Um, we've catapulted past Singapore and Thailand, which which I think is is worth um, celebrating. Um, what's interesting about this is. Um, that there was a, uh, a parallel index on the sort of happiness of of migrants to to those countries, and actually Singapore is is higher placed than Taiwan in that index. Uh, it comes twenty first, and Taiwan comes thirty eighth. So, if there's any sort of policy direction you can take about this uh, happiness index stuff, it would be that Taiwan needs to do a better job at making its migrants happy um, uh, and perhaps extending them. Uh, provisions under the Labour Standards Act and, and abolishing the broker system might be a place to start. So, Klaus, are we happy? Uh, well, I feel happy, but I'm not a Shang Banzu in Taiwan. I don't need to go to the cubicle every day. But um, looking at this data, I really want to dig into that and find out why Taiwan surpassed Japan, for example, in the ranking, because life expectancy, lack of corruption, uh, social support, things you just mentioned. Um, so I'm just wondering, where are the advantages Taiwan has over Japan, for example. I really need to look into that methodology. Better food, one could argue. If, if that's a criteria, yeah. Maybe. We're all happy about that. Generosity is also a criteria. So, mm. yeah, maybe Trust as well. How do you measure that? <laughs> do, do you trust your neighbour with some money? Look after the money for a week, I'll be back. I would, yeah. Yep. The thing, the thing about this report is, of course, the people that compile it compile it on statistics provided by governments. They don't send the people to the countries, and they don't walk around talking to people, going, "Are you happy?" Well, that's an incentive for the government to put up some realistic statistics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So happy, but of course, province of China. And have you noticed that no one's actually picked this up so far? The province of China. When, this, when the happiness index was released, everyone jumped up and down and went, Taiwan's happy. Nobody in Taiwan actually went, hang on a minute, they've called it a province of China, and maybe we're not happy. Uh, you know, which means that none of them looked at the report, because it's, it's quite clearly clearly there. It's um, quite clear. In fact, it's in, it's in black and yeah. pink and yellow and purple. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, basically, it's you can't really report. miss it. <laughs> yeah, it's a happy report. It looks happy. Um, 
you know, maybe people need to uh, to check their facts a bit more. Uh, and of course, is Taiwan province of China happier than Gansu province of China? Uh, pretty poor province of Gansu, I'd like to think so, yeah. <laughs> right. Anyway, before we go this week, Taiwan, well, along with being happy, it also got the first Michelin guide ever to be published about the capital here in Taipei. Now, apparently the guide touts the merits of 20 of the city's best eateries. 17 of the restaurants received a one-star rating, two received two-star ratings, but only one managed to grab the coveted three-star Michelin rating, that being La Palais Cantonese restaurant. La pa- I don't know Anyway, I won't, I won't linger on the name there. That doesn't really work. Anyway, but it is it is located in the Palais de Chine Hotel in Taipei. Now, the Palais, it turns out, is the first restaurant ever in the capital to receive Michelin's top rating. Now, again, another story that was touted as great news for Taiwan this week. In fact, on Thursday, it was the headline news on every 7am newscast on cable television. <laughs> now, of course, what they neglected to say, though, of course, David, was the publication was sponsored by the Tourism Bureau, which, of course, apparently might have bunged Michelin some money um apparently uh I didn't know that um haven't checked my facts on this one uh so um you know is that standard practice I know it's the first time they've come to Taiwan and with a seventh apparently it's apparently I've been informed I've been informed by someone who is informed that apparently Michelin releases these guides with the backings of the city's tourism bureau and you know they don't give them envelopes of money but they get support We'll call it support. Well, then, then it's probably always been like that. And uh, Michelin is a private company, and they have a reputation to defend. And if if that's the way they do it, then people know about it. I think it's nothing we can blame on Taiwan now. But um, I'm wondering, are there any like eateries in there with a star now that like um, normal mortals like you and me would also go to, or did they just pick some high class uh, restaurant? I was actually surprised. They actually picked a lot of Chinese restaurants. We had we had a smaller one that came out two weeks ago. I remember the night market one, mm, the, the night big, market food big, type one, should we say? Big Gourmand, is that what? Yeah, it's the, yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah, that mm. came out there, and that had some industry. I've been to quite a few of those restaurants. I'd actually eaten in. Yeah. Mm. Now the main Michelin one, two out of seventeen, uh, out, of, out of twenty. 20 yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah. not, that's not too good, really. Yeah. No. Uh, same here. I mean, I was definitely looking at, at the Big Gourmand as, as, as more realistic. Um, but I mean, it's a good to have an index of places to eat for people who live here, places you haven't tried, and certainly for tourists, people visiting. It, it, it's uh, you know, you can dish this out and wheel it out and say. Uh, where do you want to go? There's plenty of options. Because that's what the Tourism Bureau said, of course, Klaus. They said they, they hope that the, the publication will bring more tourists to Taiwan. Or do you think it's... I think it's, it will. It's, yeah. it's, or do you think it's not for domestic publication? It's for... you think it'll actually bring foreigners in? I think it's uh, actually more relevant for people who are thinking about visiting Taipei and where to go. Right? I mean, people living in Taipei, they all have their very clear opinions about where they want to go and what they consider a good restaurant or not. And uh, For example, Din Tai Fung, they also got a star, right? Um, no, they weren't no. in this one. They were not? They, well, they, they got a star before, remember. But they weren't in this okay, guide. But, but, I mean, their clientele is mostly tourists or uh, visiting businessmen who are then treated by their Taiwanese business partners to go there. It's just not a place where locals would go to, so they know about it. Now, we go to the Golden Chicken Emporium. That sounds nice. That's not a plug, by the way. So, David, do you plan to go to these Michelin-star restaurants? 
Um, <laughs> not in not in the immediate term. No, I mean I'll, I'll be checking out the recommended night market stores. I think there are ten, uh, and then there are um, plenty of other sort of uh, more reasonably priced options as well, which I'll be eating my way through. But Klaus, are you treating us for lunch today at any of these Michelin star <laughs> restaurants? Well, let's bring up the list and have a look at it. That's a no. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening to Taiwan This Week. This week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps, and I've been joined in the studio by David Green of the News Lens. Uh, thanks, Gavin. And Klaus Badenhagen, who reports, of course, for German media. Thank you. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps for all our previous episodes. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.